Yeah, we are in a series, we are in a series uh, in generosity called Generosity, uh, Fearless Generosity. Generosity is that thing. It's that, it's that thing that when you see it, you know it's something different, right? It's, it's that thing when you're exposed to it, it's, it's so kind of out of the ordinary from our self-centered culture that you, it just gets you excited. It just, get, it just kind of fires you up. So last week, uh, whether you're here or not, it doesn't matter, it's okay. But we invited you, I, I gave you a card and I said fold it over with this paper clip and keep this in your pocket on your person this week. And if you see someone in need, you can just bust that thing out and meet a need, right? And just bless somebody random with your generosity. So I know many of you did, I've heard some good stories. We have a little you know, confessional booth type thing set out there. It's not for you to confess your deepest, darkest sins. It's just for you to confess cool ways that either you have been generous or that you have seen generosity. Uh, so please do that. We had a bunch of people do it after the first service. I expect a bunch of people to do it after this one too. Even if you didn't do something cool this week, that's okay. Just tell us some cool generosity story. We want to capture and celebrate generosity in our community. Um, I also have a video that I want to show you. This isn't like specifically relating to the message per se, but I saw it on Facebook this week. I wanted to share it with you. It's powerful and it's about generosity. So watch this. And I know you guys get tired of me. It's little things. Coach Peter Morales of the Coronado High School Thunderbirds in El Paso, Texas, makes no qualms about it. He has a favorite on this team. Mitchell, I need you. I need you to help me out with my coaching tips, Mitchell. Team manager Mitchell Marcus has a developmental disability. One, two, three, And he far surpasses everyone here when it comes to love of the game. He's just an amazing person that our basketball team loves being around. Yay! Mitchell's mom, Amy, says he's always been that way. Mitchell always had a basketball. That was always what he wanted for his birthday. And because basketball is that important to him, on the last game of the regular season, the coach told Mitchell to suit up. What was it like to put on the uniform? I was very happy. I imagine you were. Just wearing a jersey was enough for Mitchell. But what he didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that the coach planned to play him. At the end, no matter what the score. You were prepared to lose that game. For his moment, yes. For his moment in time, yes. And so, with a minute and a half left, Coronado leading, but only by 10, Coach Morales put in his manager. And just started hearing Mitchell, Mitchell. But here's where the fairy tale fell apart. Although his teammates did everything they could to get Mitchell a basket, each time they passed him the ball, he either missed the shot, or, like on their last possession, booted it out of bounds, turning the ball over to the other team with just seconds left. He wasn't going to be able to score. But I was hoping that he was happy that he was just put in the game. Could you have ever imagined what happened next? No, I did I could not. Not at all. What happened next happened on the inbound. The guy with the ball there is a senior at Franklin High School. Number 22, Jonathan Montanez. Uh, I, just, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. Just thought Mitchell deserved his chance, deserved his opportunity. I think I'll cry about it for the rest of my life. What Jonathan did was yell out Mitchell's name, then threw the ball right to it, right there. One of the most memorable turnovers of all time. It wasn't the game-winning shot. When the buzzer sounded, Coronado had 15 more points than Franklin. But Jonathan's assist and Mitchell's basket did change the outcome decidedly. Play any game with this much sportsmanship. Both teams win.
Steve Hartman on the road in El Paso, Texas. Isn't that good? I watched it like three times this week online and then at the nine o'clock service and again it still brings tears to my eyes because there's something about that kind of crazy generosity when you see when you see a senior in high school who's losing this game and maybe it was an important game and and he doesn't care what what the what his fans or what his teammates are going to say he he just sees this opportunity to be crazy generous and make someone's year and he does it uh, and that's just so cool to watch. So we want to talk a little bit more today about generosity in our relationships. Because I, I have at times been generous uh, or thought that I was being generous and I actually wasn't being generous. You know, It's possible to think that you're a pretty generous person, but actually it's not really playing out that way. I was traveling a, a little while ago. I was inter- traveling internationally. And uh, you know, one of the things you do as soon as you get in country is you exchange your money. So I went to the little money exchange thing. I gave them my like $100 bill and they gave me some of their foreign currency. So I have this money that I don't really recognize. I usually hang out with people you know, from, that speak English, that understand the culture and they just spend the money for me so I don't mess it all up. But on this particular occasion, I was riding with this person. They were taking me to a meeting, and it was just me and him. And he was taking me way out of his way. It was, it was a generous act on his part. He was driving me from here to there and, uh, and to, to meet me up with this group that I was supposed to be with. And so he's driving his car, and not very many people had cars in this place. And so he was being really generous, using his gas and everything like that. And so I, just, I wanted to hook this guy up. And I was just like, man, I really appreciate it. We get to the destination. I really appreciate you. Uh, you know, taking your time out and driving me in your car and stuff like that. So I, you know, here, here, here's a little something for you. I gave him a bill with like three zeros on it. And I was like, you know, take, take your wife out somewhere nice tonight. You know, like hey, this, this, this is just between me and you, you know, like I'm taking care of you. He looks at it and he has this confused look on his face. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know. I, I, don't think like the rich American thing. Just think like the friendly guy thing. And so, you know, God bless you and gave him a hug and I left. I found out later I gave him 50 cents. <laughs> the equivalent of 50 cents. He probably spent $15 on gas on me. And I gave the dude 50 cents thinking I was being generous. It is possible, friends, to think that you are being generous and to actually not be all that generous. And so we're going to talk a little bit about why generosity is so important in this way. We're going to look first at Luke chapter 18. Let's read that together. You don't have to read it out loud, but I'm going to read it with you on the screen. It says, to some, Jesus talking, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Have you known anyone like that? Confident in their own righteousness and and I'm a good person, and I do good stuff, and I'm religious, and whatever. And they look down on other people. Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Stop there. Let me just tell you a little bit about Pharisee and tax collector. So a tax collector might have been the most hated person in their culture. A tax collector was a Jew working for the Romans who were inhabiting their, and over, you know, ruling their area. So, so it was a person who kind of turned against his own people to make a buck with the Romans. So he, the Romans were charging like a 60% tax. So if you made $100, you were giving 60 of it back to Rome. And this guy was the guy that came knocking, okay? And you knew him because you grew up with him. And he was the guy who turned to make a buck, okay? So that is a tax collector. And he comes and he says, uh, you know, they, they want 65% this month. 
And you're like, no, they don't. They just want 60. He's pocketing the 5%. They were famous for that, okay? So tax collector, one of the most hated people in that culture. Then the Pharisee, on the other hand, was they were seen, they were viewed as, you know, the, the, the high person in the culture, the, the, the respected one. They were the generous ones because even though they were being taxed unfairly, they still gave, on top of that, 10% back to God. They still gave their money. And, and when they did, they made kind of a big display of it because they're the religious people that needed to be seen doing religious things. And so they would take their, it'd be, it'd be like taking a check from this pocket and like waving it across your body before you dropped it into the box back there, right? You want everyone to see, I am giving a check today, everybody. So Pharisees literally did that kind of big demonstrative stuff, but they wanted to be seen as generous. They thought that they were generous. So watch how Jesus tells this story. The two men go, and they're, they're there to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, people who cheat on their spouse, or even this here tax collector, this wretched tax collector. I fast twice a week. I go without food twice a week to, to be holy and you know, set myself apart for you. And I give a tenth, I give 10% of everything that I give back to you, back to your church. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven, but he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that day you would beat your chest, sometimes tear your clothes and beat your chest if you were just really repentant, if you were really just broken over the, something that you had done or something that had happened. So this guy is showing genuine humility, genuine repentance, and he beats his chest. He doesn't even have the nerve to look upward toward God. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Jesus goes on, he says, I tell you the truth, this man... The tax collector, ironically, this offends the whole crowd that Jesus is talking to. He says, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but for those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's possible to think that you are generous and to actually not be. It's possible to be like a Pharisee and, and to be pay, paying off God, or to be just throwing money at something to feel better about yourself, or to be doing religious acts just to try to put yourself above other people. And God is saying in his economy, what he cares about is the heart that you receive, that you know that God is the source of generous grace. And that is what you really need, not the pomp and circumstance of seeming like you're generous. I personally have been on both sides of that equation. I grew up in a kind of Christian family, and so I thought that I did all the right things and was a good kid, and I didn't do the bad stuff. And so I, I judged people who acted crazy and lived however they wanted and lived rebelliously until I went through my own just broken season, and I realized I'm just like everybody else. I'm capable of anything under the right circumstances. It's only by God's grace that I'm not, um, you know, just off doing whatever. And when I started to have that awakening, I saw things that way. Then, here's the temptation. Here's, here's the way it goes the other direction. Then I started to judge the Pharisees. Then I started to be like saying, at least I'm not like that Pharisee who judges people. <laughs> right? 
So we can go either direction to what God is saying. He says, you need to understand my generous grace that is for you. Because his generous grace is, is it's shocking. His forgiveness is shocking. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. Starting here in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came and asked Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And again, Peter, thinking he's generous. He lived in a culture that was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Have you heard that slogan? So if someone does this to you, you do it back to them. If someone steals 100 from you, you steal 100 back from them. That was the culture that they lived in. You made it right, you made it fair. And so he says, man, I'm going to impress Jesus. What if I'm willing to forgive someone seven times if they hurt me? And Jesus says, okay, about that. Um, Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. So a guy comes up, hits you in the face. You say, oh, dude, I forgive. You. Let's just, let's say, he comes back and says, please forgive me. You're like, okay. He comes back and hits you in the face a second time. And he says, hey, please forgive me for that. He comes back and hits you in the face a third time. You hit him back in the face. Like three times. No, you don't. You just say, hey, I, I forgive you. Now, that's a, that's a trite thing. But the reality is Jesus is saying your forgiveness is ridiculous. The extent to which I want you to forgive is absurd. No one's going to do that, and it's not going to play out like that. He's making a point that your forgiveness, your grace, should be shocking, should be radical, should be, should be mind-blowing, right? And here's why we need to talk about this idea of forgiveness. Because there's a, I have for you a, a, a rejection rule. You know what the rejection rule is? You will be rejected guaranteed. You, you will be offended. You will be hurt. You will be insulted. You will be beat up. You will be treated poorly. You will be done wrong. You will be. You cannot live in this life and in this culture without being done wrong. You will have to practice forgiveness if you want to live a healthy life because you will be rejected and hurt. It will happen. And then we have a tendency to, to think, well, yeah, 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 I get it. I, forgiveness, I get why it would be a good thing. I do. I get it. Grace sounds good. Generosity, I'm for it. But if you knew, you know, this, or if this happened to you, or under these circumstances, we have some caveats, right? So, so we have caveats because we, we believe some forgiveness myths. I want to run through those with you. Here are a few of the forgiveness myths that I think that we believe. One, if I forgive them, I'm not being true or honest to myself. That's a lie. You're actually fooling yourself because you end up hurting yourself if you don't forgive. Number two, if I forgive them, I'll be letting them off the hook. Some, some kind of serious infraction has occurred, and if, if it's not made right, I'm letting them off the hook. It's not even for their own benefit. This is, you know, I can't just let people off the hook for that. There, there has to be something that's made right. Number three, if I forgive them, I'm inviting them to hurt me again. That's not, that's not the truth. That's a myth. You can create healthy boundaries in your life and still forgive generously. We're going to talk about that at the end. And number four, by not forgiving, I can stay in control. So someone has hurt me deeply, and they know it, and now I have power over them because of that thing that they've done. And so we hang on to that bitter, we hang on to that unforgiveness so that we maintain the power in the relationship, but it doesn't work. 
It's the perception of power, but here's what happens. The writer in the book of Hebrews says that when we don't forgive, what grows inside of us is this bitter root, this root of bitterness that kind of twists and turns and wraps us up inside and squeezes the life out of us. It works its way and it grows like a weed and it just takes control and it literally squeezes the life and the passion out of you. That's what happens. Jesus told a parable to take this, to take this uh, truth further. It's also in Matthew 18. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. He says that there's a king. And the king owns everything in the kingdom, right? The king owns all. But there's this businessman who's come to him, and he's, he's taken out a loan for about $100 million. He's probably going to do a big real estate deal. He takes out the loan. The economy goes sideways. The deal goes bad. He can't pay back on it. Since the economy has turned, the king says, I want to bring, bring all the debtors here. I want, I want to collect on my money. And so that guy comes in. He says, uh, I don't have your hundred million. This project went sideways and I lost it. I, but but I'll, I'll get it back. And the king says, no, sorry, we, there's, there's penalty for that. You're going to go to prison until your associates and your family can pay it off, which would have been a normal thing in that day. They, the person goes to prison and they're in prison until the work gets paid off, the money, the debt gets paid off. But the guy who owes the hundred million dollars falls on his face cries out, begs him, please, please have mercy on me. Please, I promise I'll pay it back. Please have mercy. I have a family. I have a wife. I have kids. And the king says, all right. And he wipes the debt clean. Doesn't work out a payment plan. Wipes the debt clean. Now the same guy who just got forgiven a debt of $100 million walks out into the marketplace, and he sees someone who owes him $100. And he sees him, and he goes up to him, and he literally, Jesus says, grabs him by the throat and says, give me my money. Give me my money you owe me. Probably still with the fear of oh, what happened to him and, and just this greed that's in him. And he shakes him and says, give me my money back. The guy says, please, I can't right now. I don't have it on me, but I'll get it for you. Just have mercy on me. Be patient. I have a wife. I have kids. And the dude that's just been forgiven the $100 million says, forget that. Throws, has this guy thrown in prison until the $100 can be paid off. Now, the king had people that were working for him, and they caught wind of this happening. And they came and told the king, they said, dude, remember when you let that guy go for his $100 million, which was crazy, by the way. We don't really condone that. Uh, but you won't believe what he just did. He just choked a dude out for a hundred. And the king's blood just boiled. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. So he had the man brought in and he had the man thrown in prison. And he says, you will not get out of prison until you pay me every penny of the hundred million dollars you owe me because you do not understand my generosity. I was generous with you. You should be generous with the people that owe you. Friends, that's a parable about money, and it's not a parable about money. That's a parable about God's ridiculous grace, his shocking, generous grace that he has for you and for me. You're the $100 million debtor. You're the $100 million debtor. I'm the $100 million debtor. 
who as much as I want to, I want to do right by God. I want to do well, but every day I wake up and I make mistakes. I, I fall short. I keep struggling in this one way. I keep doing this. I keep talking this way. I, I want to do the right thing, but I don't. I've, I've messed up a marriage. I've messed up this. You, you know, you've had this happen, this affair, this thing. And, and we're broken people with issues and we struggle. And we, and we come to Jesus and we say, please forgive me. And then we still struggle. And he says, you know what? Tell you what, it's all right. I'll wipe it clean. And then we have the nerve to go to someone else who owes us this little thing. And we choke them out and we say, you know what you did to me? Now, I know I'm not, I'm not trying to be trite. I know that many of us have been through severe pain. I have. But in the larger scope of eternity, that is what's happening here. Jesus came and died the most unimaginable death. That is, the, that is what the gospel is. That Jesus came and died, went through unbelievable pain and rejection so that you could understand his grace. For you, for your grace, for you to know God's generous love. And then for me to go to somebody else and say, yeah, but you treated me badly. It just flies in the face of everything that we believe. If we believe anything, it's that God's grace is incredibly generous for me and for all. And when we can't be generous with grace, with forgiveness, it just, how can anybody else see through that to get a right picture of Jesus? How can we make Jesus famous if we can't even extend his same grace that he extends to us? So we want to talk about what it means to to actually receive God's grace and then be someone who gives it. So look at your outlines. Do you have your outlines with you? It's this thing. It's why I give it to you. Do you know I put little lines in there, not because I think that you're like in elementary school, but uh, because I actually read that 50%, your retention goes up 50% if you write something down. So I thought I'd give you a fighting chance with that right there. Uh, Also, I played some volleyball yesterday, and so my forehead's a little burnt. I hope it's not distracting you. Um, Just felt like I should say that because I realized that it hurts. Uh, So becoming generous with forgiveness, number one. Identify with the offender. The first thing you do to become generous with forgiveness is to identify with the offender. Because here's, what, here's our tendency. Our tendency is to say, hey, that person, that person's a thief. I just cheat on my taxes because the government's corrupt. But that person is a thief, right? Or she is a gossip. I just talk about her just so you understand how poisonous she is. Uh, The first key to forgiveness is identifying with the offender. To say that I am just like everyone else. That I, under the right circumstances, if I had grown up in the house that they did, I'd be doing worse stuff than them. If I had gone through that thing, I'd probably make an even worse mess of it. If not for God's grace, who knows where I would be. I am the worst of sinners, as the Apostle Paul said. I am just like anyone else. I identify with you, with you, with you, with you, who even the person who hurts me the worst, I say, I'm just like them. I could do that to somebody. And maybe I, maybe I provoked that or whatever. You're not, you're, not making, you're not making the wrong okay. You're just saying, I have that in me too. I identify with 
the offender. And we shift from blame to saying, no, that's, that's in me. Look at Colossians 3.13. It says, you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who forgives you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must, you must forgive. Otherwise, how will you ever show anybody God's generous grace? You must forgive. Number two, surrender the right to repayment. Surrender the right to repayment. 1 Samuel 24 says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But as for me, my hand will not touch you. I will trust that God will do whatever God is going to do. I am not going to seek retribution. I am going to surrender the right of repayment. I'm going to remember that the king owns everything in the first place. And even though you have hurt me, I am not going to choke you out for this little bit. I am going to be generous with my grace. The, the people that struggle with this, the people that can't surrender that right to repayment, the people that just, they're, they're just stuck in their bitterness, that root of bitterness just has them all wound up. You can see it on their face. They wear it. It's like Groundhog Day every day for them because they just keep rehashing the thing that they're mad about over and over and over and they can get themselves all worked up in an instant. You can be at a party having tons of fun and you mention that person's name and it's just like, boom, transformation. It's right there on the surface. They're just ready to get mad at any point in time if that person's name is mentioned because they can't surrender the right for repayment they can't forgive and when you can't forgive that bitterness will just wrap you up two women that i want to talk to you about one was the wife of leo tolstoy famous russian writer he he had crazy kind of like sexual exploits in his younger years when he finally did get married he stupidly uh showed his wife journals. Uh, and, you know, writer, he wrote for some reason about all the, you know, things that he had done when he was younger with all these women. And so she saw that. She married him anyway. She stayed with him anyway for decades. But the whole time she was bitter. The whole time she held that against him. And after about 40 years, she just couldn't take it anymore and filed for divorce. Decades and decades of living miserable because she couldn't let it go. She couldn't forgive. Then there's another woman, Tippi Hendren. Have you heard of Tippi Hendren? She had a very short career in Hollywood. She, she was, did a movie with uh, uh, Hitchcock. Yeah, with Hitchcock. And he, made, he, was, he was a womanizer, and so he was making advances on her, and he put significant pressure on her to sleep with him. It was kind of like par for the course, whatever movie he was working on, Hitchcock, that was how he rolled. And so he like put pressure on this woman and said, if you do not sleep with me, I will ruin your career. And she stayed strong and she refused to sleep with him. And he stayed true to his word and he ruined her career. He made it very difficult for her to get work in Hollywood after that. Years later, Alfred Hitchcock dies. She goes, Tippy goes to the funeral. They're associates, their friends in common or whatever that are also at the funeral, see Tippy and they think, what are you doing here? One of them asks, why would you come? He ruined your life. And Tippy's confident response back was, he did not ruin my life. He only ruined my career. And she came when he was dead because she didn't need anything else from him. She had surrendered the right to repayment. She had moved on in her life and she had made it up. She had forgiven 
that man. Now, here's another simple little illustration to, to, to just help drive the point home. Let's say that you are eating at a restaurant, and you are eating at this nice fancy restaurant, you have on a nice shirt that you just got from Nordstrom, and you're sitting there, or wherever you shop, and so you're sitting there, and you're about to eat, and the server comes by, and he's trying, he's about to pour you a glass of wine, but he stumbles right as he gets there, and it spills over on you, and just splashes straight across your shirt. So the shirt, it's going to take a miracle at the dry cleaner, or that thing is just done and ruined. So you're pretty bummed out, and the server says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Here, let me get you, let me take that off, let me kind of spot clean that, and I'm just going to pay for the shirt. Now, if you allow the server, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, this is just an you know, example, but if you allow the server to buy your shirt, you are not forgiven. Because forgiveness literally means to release the debt. If you allow the server to pay for your shirt, you are not forgiving the server. To forgive the server, you would say, I will pay for this shirt. I will accept that this shirt is ruined. I will take this on me. I'm not going to hold you accountable for the shirt, right? That is, in essence, what you're That is forgiveness. So take that to a more like emotional, spiritual, relational standpoint in your everyday lives. And if you hold over somebody else who has hurt you, who has offended you, who has done you wrong, if you hold it over them and just wait for them to pay it off and say, you have to pay this debt, you have to make this right, that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing the person from debt. It's, it's surrendering the right to repayment. And get this, you can decide today that you're going to forgive somebody and you still might have to wake up every day this week and remind yourself. Because it's difficult. There's, there's painful things that have happened in your life. I know it. And it's difficult. You have to make the decision sometimes multiple times. When their face comes up, when the situation comes back, when the pain comes back, you have to remind yourself, no, I am surrendering the right for repayment. I'm not expecting that person to make it right. I trust the generous grace that God has had on me, and I extend that to this person, and I trust that in somehow in God's economy, he will make this right between he and I, not between this person. I am surrendering the right to repayment. Number three, pray for the offender to be blessed. Now, some of you, some of you that have been thinking here, oh, like a rack in your brain, do I need to forgive anybody, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I think I'm pretty good. Here's the test. Do you have someone in your life that you will not pray for God to bless them? If you can't pray, for God to bless this person, then you still have unforgiveness. Because as much as they've done, as badly as they've hurt you, you should still be able to say, God, I want what's good for this person. Now, you think you know what's good for this person. You know, I pray that you will show them the error of their ways. I pray that their hair would fall out. I pray, you know, whatever it is, I pray, God, you make this right. But to pray that God would bless this person, now that. That's otherworldly. That's something beyond human capacity. That says that you are understanding God's grace for you and that you can extend it to other people as well. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ for God forgave you. There's a guy that I read about in um, the Harvard Business Review this past week, Laura Galinsky wrote the article, and she talks about this guy named Terrence Stevens. He was a paraplegic. He grew up in the projects of Harlem and uh, probably came up in a rough crowd because one day he's driving with his buddy, and in his buddy's car, there's cocaine. 
They get pulled over for who knows what, but the police search them. They find the cocaine. And in that era, I think it was the early 70s, they were arrested immediately, and it was the Rockefeller law kind of deal where they were just cracking down hard on drugs. And so four, uh, more than four ounces of cocaine, you would find yourself in prison for 15 years to life, which was a parallel to the sentence of a, a second-degree murder. So this kid finds himself in that situation, paraplegic, bound to a wheelchair, wasn't even his drugs, and he's in prison for 15 years to life. Not only that, he's in prison, and he can't do the things that the guards and and other inmates are asking him to do, and so they beat him ruthlessly. He's pardoned after 10 years, but you would think the damage has been done, and that he would just who knows what he would do upon getting out of prison. That root of bitterness, if you let that go 10 years when you're just being humiliated every day in jail and the guards, the other inmates, just, just the brutality of living in that situation, what, what, what that would do to your soul. Somehow, I don't know the details of his situation. So he must, to me, he must have experienced God's grace in some way because when he was released from prison, instead of going back out on a vendetta or being angry at the world, he went back to prison. He started an organization called In Arms Reach that runs an intensive mentoring program for children of incarcerated parents. He didn't want people to go through the kind of pain that he and his family went through. So he went back and helped And he went back to the same prison where he was mistreated and made sure that they knew about this program and extended forgiveness to the guards and the inmates that were there and made this his life mission. He understood grace and gave it back generously. The way you know if you have really forgiven someone is if you can pray that God would bless them. If you can go back into the situation and want and will the best for somebody else. And then number four, Create boundaries of grace. Jonathan, let's fire up the technology. I have a handy little pen. Not that one. This one. So what we have here, on this spectrum, you have, over here on this left side, you have something that's, this is all grace. These are the people that, you know, it's, it's, grace comes easy, but you don't really deal with the real issue. When, when Hillary and I fight, we do fight, um, she is more on the all-truth side in that she wants to be real clear about the details of why we're fighting. <laughs> she wants to make good and sure that I understand what I did in this situation and that I can repent for each and specific thing. And for me, I'm like, whatever, I did it, you're right, you know, I just want to get it done with. You're like, grace, I, I got grace for that, you know, but I don't actually deal with the issue. So you might find yourself on one of these two spectrums, either all grace and you don't deal with the real truth of the matter, or all truth and no grace, and you just want to point out and you don't have grace for people. So people find themselves on one of these two spectrums. You need to know where your default is. You need to know if you're a mostly truth person, 
kind of fault-finding, fact-finding, and figuring that out. Or if you're a mostly grace person that just wants to move past it, just wants everybody to be happy, and just let's get the family back together, you know? You need to know where you fall on that. And here's, here's the goal, that somewhere in this mysterious middle, that God does something special, and you can see that, that his, it's a combination of grace and truth. That's the only way this works. That you have to be honest about the pain. You have to be real about what happened. You have to, you know, you, you can't ignore the reality of it. But then you have to be crazy graceful in the middle. You have to figure out boundaries that are appropriate. Now, one last passage that helps us with the boundary thing. Thank you, Jonathan. Matthew 18, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. So take it to a, a kind of a spiritual leader. Maybe, maybe in our context, maybe it's a life group leader or a rooted group leader. Maybe it's one of our associate elders. You know, wh- whatever it is. Take that person to a spiritual leader. Let them take your issue to that person and get, get their feedback on it. Then, if the person won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or as a corrupt tax collector. Now, Here's what's happened for generations. People, religious people, have taken this passage, which says, if you have an offense, go straight to the person. Good idea, right? That would be the, the truth part of it. You're going you're gonna to extend forgiveness and grace, but you're going to also, you know, say that this hurt my feelings or whatever. And if that person totally blows you off, you're going to get somebody else. Not to punk them, but just to kind of be a sounding board so you're also there hearing the same thing. And if that doesn't work, you're going to get some kind of counsel from a spiritual authority. You're going to say, here's how this is playing out. Can you tell me, if, am I wrong in this? Help me think through this. That makes sense, right? Now, here's what a lot of religious people have done over the years. Then they take that next part. And they say, if that person still rebels and still says they want no part of that, then treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, cut them out. They're terrible. Send them out from the church or whatever the case may be. You know, who's writing this, this passage? Matthew. What did Matthew do before Jesus called him? Matthew was a tax collector, the scum of the earth in his day. And Jesus called him out. Jesus went and found him and said, I want you as a part of my inner circle. I want to show my grace to you. So when Matthew says, go to the person, talk about the offense, bring somebody else, get some feedback from the church, and then if they still won't, if they still won't reconcile, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, what he's telling them is treat them how Jesus treated me. When I was the furthest out guy, he just, he had grace on me, he invited me in. For you, it might be someone close to you who, was, who has really jacked up your relationship. And for you, it might, be, it might mean that you just have to start over with this person. It means that you go back to square one, right where Jesus found Matthew, when he was still all in his mess, taking from other people, taking taxes and more on top of that, when he was hated in his community and Jesus had grace for him. He's saying, if they don't respond this way, then they're not part of the family anymore. They're not, they're not in it with you. So start over. 
Don't exile them, right? Don't take them out and have them hung or whatever. Start again. Even in that scenario, it's just bathed in grace. Because that is Jesus. That's how he treats us. Friends, you and I are the $100 million debtor. And there's people in our lives that we have gone to and we have made a big deal out of something that has pro- is probably preventing them from seeing God's crazy generosity for them. We must be those who forgive. We must be those who are generous with our grace. Otherwise, how can, we, how can we point to this Jesus who's been so generous with us? I put in your bulletin a card. Can you grab it? It looks like this. We're going to take a minute right now, and I, I want to invite you to write on this card. We're going to pass plates, but not for money. We're going to pass plates for this. I want to invite you to give your offering to God of saying, I, I am letting this go. I am trusting you, God, in spite of the way I have been hurt, in spite of this terrible situation that might go unresolved, that might never get fixed. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to release the offense. I'm going to surrender my right to repayment. I'm going to identify with this person. I'm going to pray for this person. I might have to create a boundary and redefine the relationship but it's all going to be in grace. God, I am going to let this go. Would you take a second now and just write as God has been speaking to you or invite him to speak to you now? Some of you, you might need to forgive yourself. Some of you might be just sitting, that bitter root, whatever that is, that it might just be squelching you because you can't let go of how you have failed or things that you have done. And you might need to write your, the instance of your own failure or whatever on this thing. And you might need to let that go today. Whatever it is, I, I invite you to make this your offering. Surrender this to God today. And just say, give me the strength. However, I don't understand it. I can't do it on my own, but I want to let this go. I don't want this to produce bitterness in my life. I don't want this to choke out my life. God, I just pray that you would speak, that you would give us courage to trust you, to let go of the unforgiveness, of the pain and the hurt, and to trust your generous grace. You have been so generous with us, God. Make us people who are generous with others. In Jesus' name.